Cairo, Seattle. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Paul Janeway, lead singer of St. Paul and the Broken Bones. That's a song off their new album, Alien Coast. Paul lives in Birmingham, Alabama, land of barbecue and fried green tomatoes. But it's also home to a unique, hyper-regional cuisine. We have a lot of, like, Greek soul food down here in Birmingham. I chat with the owner of Alabama's oldest restaurant and a local filmmaker who made a documentary about the history of Greek soul food. How many boxes of Kraft mac and cheese have you eaten in your lifetime? If you're anything like me, you've eaten dozens, maybe hundreds of boxes. But do you know anything about its history? I didn't. But luckily, food historian Sarah Wasberg-Johnson knows all about it. Macaroni and cheese clearly has a very long history in the United States. But there's no real commercial version of macaroni and cheese available until Kraft. All of that coming up. But first, my conversation with Paul Janeway. Hello? There you are. Oh my God. Thank you. There you are. I always get so nervous. I'm like, I'm at home. I'm at the radio station. There's no engineer to save me. Everything's ruined. Okay. I pushed one button. It's fixed. It's fine. St. Paul and the Broken Bones have toured all around the world. The band even counts Elton John as one of its biggest fans. But like most entertainers, they started small. So you started playing in a pizza place. Is that right? Yeah. One of our first shows um, and this band was at a place called Oasis Pizza. And we say it every time before we get on stage because uh, it's kind of a reminder. Don't forget where you came from. But it was a it was in Harrogate, Tennessee. It was a pizza joint slash convenience store. And it was booked by like the guitar players. It's not like it was some big extravaganza. Um, you just played wherever you could. And we played at this place. And I remember being like, okay, these people are going to be eating pizza while we're like families are coming in. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to give these people the show of their life. Like, and just kind of have that attitude every time we perform. And so I was standing up on the tables while these like children were eating their pizza and pounding the table and screaming in their face. (laughs) It definitely was probably against some health codes because my feet were on the table and, you know, I'm spitting everywhere people loved it, you know, and it became one of those things like, all right, if you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. And don't ever kind of, you can do it anywhere. If you've made it at Oasis Pizza, (laughs) you can (laughs) make it in the big city. Some people did leave, but we say it every time before we get on stage, we say Oasis Pizza. And it's just kind of a centering moment, you know, where you just go, don't forget where we came from and don't forget who you are. As a band, you guys have traveled around the world at this point. I read that you learned how to use chopsticks because of being on the road. (laughs) Man, you have done some research. I like it. Yes. Yeah, I did not know how to use chopsticks until I would say, I would say probably four or five years ago. Left-handed handwriting is awful. It's awful, awful. Um, I'm just going to interject to say that I'm also left-handed and have no problems with handwriting or chopsticks. So this is a you thing. <laughs> All right. Thanks for blowing my cover. I know, anyway. I'm so sorry. I just have to say anyway. that for the lefties everywhere. 
I never eat with chopsticks. I mean, I'm yes. from rural Alabama. That's really what it is. But, but yeah, we were in, actually, it was Australia. I mean, I didn't eat sushi. Oh. till I didn't even like sushi till about three years ago. Oh, wow. I know. Now I love it. So, yeah, I had to learn. And then when we were in Japan, it was like, you don't have a choice. Yeah. This is what you have. And so my taste for food, my palate has definitely expanded. And I've had to learn a lot of different things and as an adult now, it's like, I, I really do. Like, it's a lot of fun. And that's one of my favorite things to do on the road. I love that you were open to it because there's plenty of people who would just say, I'm not eating this. You can find a McDonald's everywhere, but you definitely were open to the experiences. Oh, hundred percent. I was definitely open. There's definitely um, places where McDonald's is the best option. United Kingdom. Sorry to our English friends. <laughs> I just saying yeah. there, and this free Wi-Fi. So McDonald's. Not the worst option sometimes <laughs> in certain places. I'm just saying. But we've been in some situations where that's the only option. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoy, I have, I mean, golly, Japan was my favorite. That was probably my favorite. Mm-hmm. Me and my wife went 10 days before we went on tour over there. And I just, I could stay there forever. I lived in Japan for a year, about 12 years ago, and every other American I met was losing weight, and I gained 10 or 15 pounds (laughs) because I couldn't stop eating everything. I wanted to try everything. It was so good. Like a lot of Southerners, Paul grew up in the church. He sang his first solo with the choir when he was just three years old, and his parents didn't let him listen to popular music. Paul grew up wanting to be a preacher, and he was actually training to be one, but a change in faith and a love for music led him in a completely different direction. Do you remember what your first rebellion music purchase was away from the music your parents let you listen to? Um, it was probably like Dave Matthews band or oh, something like bad. that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Dangerous. I would say the one though, that was the gateway drug for me is uh, Tom Waits. Oh, cool. That was the gateway drug. Once Tom Waits came around like that opened my world. And basically, I, I got obsessed. I was working at a mechanic shop. My favorite days, I would get to escort like big machinery on the back of trucks. And I'd be the blinking car in the front, you know, that yeah. got to escort them, yeah. you know. And that would be my favorite days because I could just listen to music all day long. And, and so I got obsessed because I felt like I was playing catch up. That was kind of the heyday of Pitchfork. And, and so you're like, OK, this is what the cool kids listen to. great with Tom Waits? An entire box of Kraft Mac and Cheese. After the break, we'll get to the history of Kraft Mac and Cheese, and Paul will share his last meal. Everybody knows the old expression, as American as apple pie. But if you grew up in 1980s suburbia like I did, there was nothing more American than a blue box of Kraft Mac and Cheese in the pantry. Tell me your history and your story with Kraft Mac and Cheese. (laughs) (laughs) I have a love affair with it. I, for the longest time, thought that was like gourmet mac and cheese. My granny would make mac and cheese. She would cook too much or something and leave it in the fridge. When I was little, I'd sneak down. They, they had like a, a trailer out, outside of uh, Lebanon, Tennessee. And I would, you know, walk from end to end to get to the fridge and just get, you know, that cold mac and cheese out of the fridge. Man, that was 
like the best at like 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, I can feel that feeling in my mouth right now. It's totally congealed. It's yeah. stuck together. Yeah. It's gross good. It's good in this gross way that, yeah, I don't think anyone from any other culture who didn't grow up with it would ever want to put in their mouth. Yes. Because people are like, you know, you grow up in the South. So everyone's like, oh, your mama's grandma's homemade mac and cheese and all that stuff. And I was like, my extended family was that way. But, you know, my mom and dad worked like that. <laughs> so it's not like there was, yeah. you know, it was it was boxed. Still to this day, it's very nostalgic and it, it just hits differently. And I've had, I mean, I love mac and cheese. Who doesn't? Um, and I've had some great mac and cheese, but I can still eat it. You know what I mean? Like there's certain things when you were young and you're like, I would never eat that again. You know what yeah. I mean? How did I eat that at that age? That one, for some reason, has stuck. And your dad could hardly make a box of Kraft mac and cheese. My dad, whom I love dearly, is one of the worst chefs on the planet. I mean, he really is one of the worst. <laughs> I think cooking Kraft macaroni and cheese one time, he almost burned, burned the house down. I don't even know how you do that. What happened was my mom had like grease. He tried to boil the grease to put the mac and cheese. <laughs> he was going to boil the noodles in grease instead of water? <laughs> Wow. Bingo. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. I believe you now. <laughs> exactly. When my parents divorced, I was like 16. And man, it was pitiful. We are, this is no joke, for several years. My dad's, you know, we're, he's a divorced man living in, you know, a tiny apartment. Our Christmas tradition, this is no joke, was to get Hooters to go. Hooters to go for Christmas because it's one of the only places open. And you would think like, oh, he's a single guy. Maybe he wants to, you know, those places always like creep me out. Yeah. But, you know, you're like, it's Christmas. No, it was nobody wanted. He didn't want to go there. He didn't want to sit there. And I can just tell you, one of the saddest places on Christmas Day is a Hooters. I'm just telling you, <laughs> it is so sad. It's one of the saddest places I've ever been. But that was our Christmas tradition wow. for years. People don't believe that. And I'm like, no, that was our Christmas tradition. Getting Hooters to go is the equivalent of reading Playboy just for the articles. Exactly. That's exactly what it was like. He really did like the wings. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe they were uh, even open on Christmas. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, PSA, everybody. Hooters is open, I think, until the afternoon on Christmas Day. Good to know. The saddest place on earth. What would you want for your last meal? It, this was not easy for me, but... I kind of decided that, like, if I could start the meal off with, like, some raw oysters from the Gulf, a little bit of, like, Parmesan cheese and butter and put them on the grill just for a little bit. Okay. Either way, a good steak. And I had one of my favorite steaks actually in a restaurant here in Birmingham called Highland Bar and Grill. They just won over James Beard mm -hmm. a couple years ago. And that's, that's the best steak I ever had. If I could have that and then Kraft macaroni and cheese, that would be it. That is good. That, that I don't know. It's so weird because like steak and that, my wife finds it ridiculous, but it makes me feel like king of Alabama. Like it <laughs> makes me feel Alabama rich. Like no joke. Like I, it's one of those like celebratory things. And my wife is just like, okay. I, it's not something like I have often, but yes. it's like if there's something to celebrate, like she's like, I don't even have to ask what you want. Steak and a, like Kraft macaroni and cheese. 
Are you famous enough that you could bring in your own box of craft to this James Beard restaurant and say, will you make this to go with my steak? <laughs> um, How much power do you wield? Uh, I would feel very uncomfortable doing yes. that. Uh, it's, it's a refined establishment where you have to wear a coat. Though I, Frank Stead and Partis, who, who work that, who are the chef and owner, they are very kind to me and very nice. I actually think they would let me do something like that, like that maybe. But I, there is no way in hell I would ask. Yeah, there is. <laughs> you have manners, good manners of a southern boy. Would, exactly. Like I would just feel awful. Yes. It's all. It's already like an episode for me to have to like dress up and wear a coat. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm very basic. I mean, I like me and my wife have flown to Mexico City to like eat the food and eat like at these you know, Michelin star restaurants, but I'm still just a very, at the core of me, a very basic um, eater. I've eaten crazy stuff. I mean, crickets and pigeon heart and brains and all that stuff. And, but when, when this was asked, I was like, that's what I would have. Yeah. For his last meal, Paul wants Gulf oysters, either raw or grilled with Parmesan cheese and butter. He wants a steak from Highland Bar and Grill in Birmingham, Alabama and Kraft macaroni and cheese. How do you like to make your Kraft mac and cheese? Because I feel like people have strong opinions. What I do typically is I go through the normal process of boiling and butter and all that. I like getting one of those like like some really good like cheddar block cheese or something. Shred it and then as you're mixing it, put it in. And that's that's really about it. That is luxury. Um, it is luxury. It is. I'm telling you, it is luxury. I feel like a king with this meal. So the way that I do my craft Mac is I don't like any milk in it, just the butter. Cause I like it really thick. I don't like when it is okay. soupy at all. And my ritual is that I pretend that I'm a civilized person and I put some in a bowl and then I go and I sit and I eat it knowing the entire time that I'm going to go back and take the entire pot <laughs> and eat the rest out of the pot. And has anyone ever eaten less than the entire box? My wife, she told me one time, she said, that is not a meal. It is. What I, I agree. <laughs> She's like, that is not a meal. You have to have some green. You have to have some. I was like, no. And I, because what I would do is I just make it. I, yeah, you're right. I would transfer it from the pot to a like big bowl though. Like a serving, yeah. like a mixing like bowl. A, yeah, like a mixing bowl. Yeah. So I, I would class it up just a little bit. Um, but you're right. If you don't eat all of it, then what are you doing? Like, there's no way. I think it says it's four servings on the box. Is this America? Yeah, it's definitely one. Did you see that Kraft did this thing where they did like, they've been doing weird releases. And like, I think one was like Valentine candy flavored Kraft no. mac and cheese. Yes. And it's like very limited. And I tried to win a sweet steak. It sounds terrible to me, but it's like pink mac and cheese with like, oh. it's like candy flavored. There's a fancy ice cream shop called Van Leeuwen in New York. And you might have seen this. It was last year they made a Kraft Mac and Cheese ice cream. And three of my friends, we went online to get it. It was released at this particular time. And it was like, click, 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 click. And they sold out in one second. Um, so we made our own at home. And it wasn't terrible. I don't need it again. But it wasn't so bad. And it was yeah. fun to sit, like steep the Kraft mac and cheese in the ice cream base. Like it felt very chefy and straining it out and very <laughs> highs and lows. <laughs> I mean, I will try it. Yeah. I might not like it, but I'm going to try it. 
Kraft released its macaroni and cheese in the late 1930s, but the company was already a giant in the processed cheese industry, having already acquired Velveeta and Philadelphia cream cheese. Food historian Sarah Wasberg-Johnson says commercial pasta used to take a really long time to cook, but the invention of a new quick cooking pasta allowed for the creation of one of America's most beloved shelf-stable foods. They discovered that one of their cheese salesmen, a guy by the name of Grant Leslie, was going door to door selling cheese as a craft cheese salesman. And he had figured out that people liked macaroni and cheese. And so he took a box of pasta and a rubber band and Kraft was selling bags of pre-shredded American cheese at that time. And he was marketing them together. And uh, James L. Kraft at Kraft headquarters, he's the founder of Kraft Cheese Company, uh, hears about this and how popular it is and says, hey, that sounds like a new product. So in 1937, they released Kraft Dinner, which is a combination of that quick cooking pasta and a packet of pre-shredded Kraft American cheese, 10 ounces. And uh, the slogan was dinner for four in nine minutes. So the pasta was supposed to take seven minutes to cook and then you would melt butter and cheese and milk together. And that was the sauce for the macaroni and cheese. Interesting. So it's the same recipe, but instead of the powdered cheese, it's just shredded cheese. Yes, they developed the powdered cheese in large part so they could increase production and also extend the shelf life. Kraft makes its own cheese sauce and then dehydrates and partially defats it to make the powdered cheese that's not going to spoil. So you have to add liquid and fat back into the cheese sauce when you're making macaroni and cheese, right? That's the butter and milk or or the butter and water, depending on how you make it. This is shocking to me that they make a cheese sauce and dehydrate it. This never occurred to me that it was an actual sauce. I don't know what I thought it was. I guess I just thought it was like cheese chemicals. So in this factory, there's like liquid cheese flowing like lava. I'm imagining kind of like the chocolate river and Charlie and the chocolate factory. And then they dehydrate it. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's what they still do today. (laughs) But that's that's definitely what they did initially. How did Kraft Mac and Cheese do that first year? It was a runaway hit. Craft Dinner, as it was called then, in a yellow box, not the familiar blue box that we know today, was a runaway hit. It was released in 1937. It was very affordable. Um, the first year it was out, prices ranged from like 15 to 20 cents a box. That actually went down in the ensuing years to like 9 or 10 cents a box. So it was extremely popular, in large part because that's the height of the Great Depression, right? And so to be able to feed a family of four for 15 cents in the Great Depression, that's that's a pretty good deal. And macaroni and cheese is objectively delicious. It's true. <laughs> Although I think huge issue with this It Feeds for business. I mean, I talked about this also with Paul from St. Paul and the Broken Bones. Like, I'm eating the whole box. Like, it's too much, but I'm eating the whole thing. Have you ever split it? between four people i mean maybe if you are being classy and you're using it as a side dish which just seems so weird for people come on if you think about it i mean the original cheese packet of shredded cheese was 10 ounces that's a lot of cheese that's more than half a pound pound. of cheese okay so maybe back then it really would feed four people unless it was just like insanely cheesy (laughs) well and a lot of the recommendations for how to serve it i have a little craft cookbook 
in my collection from 1942. It's called the Cheese Cookbook. You know, it was very popular at the time to place it in a ring mold, unmold on a round chop plate and fill the center with hot creamed chicken. And then you're supposed to like put little um, groupings of canned green beans and pimento strips decoratively around the outside of the platter. Ooh la la. And then the second one is Montana macaroni, which is craft dinner with butter, chili sauce, Worcestershire sauce, buttered breadcrumbs, and bacon. Oh, it says add the grated cheese product from the package. So this 1942, they're still doing the grated cheese in 1942. And then you bake it until the bacon is crisp. And it says Western camp cookery inspired this favorite. So it wasn't necessarily just plopping a bowl of macaroni and cheese in front of in front of four people. People would add other ingredients to it. But if you if you had to, you know, you could serve just just the dinner. The price is still so affordable. I mean, it's like generally a dollar a box. And I read something online that said with inflation, it should be three dollars a box. In North America in particular, wheat is very, very cheap. So making pasta is pretty inexpensive. One pound box of grocery store pasta, you can get that for a dollar today. And then dairy is also very inexpensive in the United States. And Kraft still does have a very large cheese production arm. So it could be that they are using some of the byproducts of that also for their cheese powder. Kraft Mac and Cheese just feels so all-American, but there is a country that loves it even more than us. And I guess they're American too. It's North America, but Canada. What is up with Canada and what they still call Kraft Dinner? Canadians consume about 55% more Kraft Dinner than Americans do. And it comes out to about 3.2 boxes per person in Canada per year. I told Sarah how I like to make a box of Kraft interesting so you just do butter and cheese butter and cheese which you have to put some elbow grease into it because you got to really unclump it and mix it up but worth it in the end in my opinion so that's very interesting to me because some of our oldest macaroni and cheese recipes are just layering pasta and butter and grated cheese that's because i have the ghost of mac and cheese makers inside (laughs) of me it's just instinctive (laughs) sorry to say that's funny Did you grow up eating Kraft Mac and Cheese? Do you like to do any mix-ins like peas or cut-up hot dogs or tuna or, like I like to do, a splash of Valentina hot sauce? Or are you someone who has never tried it before? I would like to know why you haven't tried it before. Well, if you happen to be listening to this episode the day it comes out or the day after, so either Thursday, February 10th or the 11th, I am doing a poll in my Instagram stories. Pop over to Hello Rachel Bell, that's B-E-L-L-E, and share your deepest darkest, tastiest, weirdest craft mac and cheese secrets. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, Paul shares his pandemic cooking adventures and we'll learn all about Birmingham's Greek soul food scene. I read this was like from a few years ago. So I'm curious to know if this changed because you said, I like food, but I'm a terrible cook. I don't have time to learn. I'm not home very much. But you were home for quite a long time with the pandemic. Did you learn how to cook? Are you any better? I think so. I bought a, I got really into barbecuing and smoking meat. 
So I um, bought a, uh, it's a horizon where I have to like chop the wood and oh, wow. burn. Yeah, yeah. Not like a, a pellet smoker, but like, like a legit cut lumber and the whole, you know, yeah. get, get like oak wood and cherry wood. So I feel like I'm a, I get into things really intensely mm. and then we'll see three months later if they stick around. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's, that's my personality. Music obviously stuck around. There's a few other things that have stuck around, but like I, I want to, you know, try all sorts of things. So I got really into that. Me and my wife, we've actually cooked, started to cook together a lot, which is great. She used to work at a university and they would, she would spend every January in Italy. And so we have all these like Italian recipes. We made like New Mexico enchiladas with some green chilies the other day. Yeah. So good. We actually got back from New Mexico a couple of weeks ago and we're like, okay, let's, Let's try this. Yeah, so it's inspiring when you go somewhere. It is. It is. It is. So it's, it is fun. Like it's a fun couple thing to do, you know, and like we enjoy it when we have time to do it. When your hands meet on the mixing spoon and you feel all the feelings again, like you felt the first time. Yeah, I don't know if that's no. it, but <laughs> not going to have a romance novel coming up for your next three months project. <laughs> no, no, I don't think that's okay. I mean, you know. What is um, the Alabama style of barbecue? I'm not familiar with that particular style. I think I read somewhere that Alabama has the most barbecue joints per capita than yeah. any state state in the union. I mean, you, you can get kind of all sorts of things up here, but the thing that's kind of like native Alabama is a uh, smoked chicken with white sauce. Oh, And it's like a mayonnaise based sauce, barbecue sauce. It's delicious. So anytime I get all these people from like music business, you know, and they want to come see you, it's fun getting to expose them to something like that. And that's usually, that's usually the biggest hit and is, uh, and then we have a lot of like Greek soul food down here in Greek Birmingham. Soul food? Yeah. So it's a mix of kind of soul food with like Greek elements. So we had a lot of like Greek immigrants move down here for some reason it melds really well. And it was like meat and threes that are kind of like Greek style. Wow. Oh my yeah. God, I've never heard of this. I get so excited when it's something totally new. <laughs> it's, 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 it's some of my, I mean, it's, we actually did a thing for ESPN, the SEC network. And we did a performance and it was with John T. Edge. And we performed at this place called the Bright Star, which is one of those kind of style restaurants. And I grew up, I didn't think anything about it. I just thought that's how food, because I grew up going there. Like my grandfather's retirement was there. You know what I mean? Like, so it's been my, around for a long time. Oh the, yeah. Years. What was it since the 1920s or something like that? Cool. Yeah. It's good stuff. The restaurant that Paul just mentioned is called the bright star. And it's the oldest family run restaurant in Alabama. Well, the restaurant opened in Bessemer, Alabama in 1907. That's Stacy Craig, fourth generation co-owner of the Bright Star. A cousin of my grandfather's, his name was Tom Bondurz, immigrated from Greece. He opened the restaurant in 1907. There was quite a bit of Southern European immigration, and he was part of that wave. All the immigrants went through Ellis Island, but there were pockets of immigrants who had moved south. In the case of Bessemer, they had coal mining and steel production, and Bessemer was a boomtown at the turn of the century. And so it's really gotten to be kind of an iconic restaurant just because of the history of it. Bessemer, Alabama is about 20 miles from Birmingham, and the Greek immigrants who didn't want to work in the coal mines or in the steel industry open restaurants to feed those workers. 
But just like the Chinese immigrants who came to the States and opened restaurants, they had to adjust to American palates. They knew the American laborers didn't want Greek food, so they served classic Southern foods. Donuts and coffee in the morning, but they sneaked in a few Greek-inspired dishes. The Greek-style snapper from the Gulf cooked in a you know, Greek technique, so to speak. Olive oil, salt and pepper, oregano, a lot of lemon juice. It's our really our most popular fish. And the Greek-style tenderloin is the same way. It's marinated in olive oil, salt, pepper, simple. Lemon juice, it's marinated for four to eight hours and then cooked. And that's definitely the, the Greek influence. Those are the two signature items on the menu, along with the Greek chicken. Our menu mostly is not Greek. I and mean, we have blackened snapper, fried snapper, fried snapper throats, boiled snapper throats. Uh, we have a very good Greek salad. If you go to Ted's restaurant in Birmingham, you can get a classic meat and three with a Greek twist. If you've never had a meat and three, it is the best invention in the world. You get to make your own plate and try a bunch of different things on the menu. It's called a meat and three. So you choose what meat you want and then three sides. So if you go to Ted's, you could choose Greek souvlaki with mac and cheese and collard greens and yams. Or if you go to Johnny's in Birmingham, you might order the Greek meatballs or go with the chicken pot pie with a side of Greek stewed green beans with tomatoes and turnip greens. Jessica Chrisman made a documentary called Philoxenia featuring six Greek soul food restaurants in the Birmingham area. She says at one point, every barbecue restaurant in the city was owned by a Greek family. And for some reason, they also opened a bunch of hot dog shops. Dust's Hot Dogs is a, is a little hot dog place in downtown Birmingham. Uh, downtown Birmingham used to be littered with hot dog places. And this is sort of the last one standing. It's around 75 years old. Um, I believe it's had three Greek owners right now. It's owned by a very nice guy named Lee. Their special, which is a Birmingham style hot dog, which involves having like chili on the dog because Birmingham is a mining town. It's a steel town. It's an industrial town. And so back in the day when most of the workers downtown were working in the mines and mills, they needed something heartier. So by adding that extra ground beef on top, you still have an affordable, but more filling, a little more uh, stick to your ribs meal uh, that you can take with you back down to the mines. So is it just um, like a classic chili dog or is there a, like a certain kind of flavor to it that makes it Birmingham? Because it looks like barbecue sauce on top. Yeah, so it's a hot dog that's on a griddle. There's mustard, ground beef, or chili. And then every um, hot dog place has its own secret sauce. The Greek immigrants even influenced one of the most popular Alabama desserts. This was my favorite fact that I learned while making the film, was that the first bananas in Birmingham were imported by um, a Greek immigrant. So I like to say that, you know, you can thank the Greek immigrants for your banana pudding that we love so much. And that was Paul Janeway's Last Meal. Well, thank you so much. This was the most fun interview I've done in a while. So thank you oh. for being a fun person to talk to. <laughs> oh, thanks, Val. Yeah. Val, thank you. Well, good luck with the new album. And next time I have a big, giant pot of mac and cheese, I will think of you. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good to me. St. Paul and the Broken Bones are touring their new album right now. It's called The Alien Coast. To find the tour schedule and to buy the album, two of the very best ways to support musicians, find a link in the show notes. 
thanks to food historian Sarah Wasberg Johnson. You can find her work at thefoodhistorian.com. Thanks to Stacey Craig, owner of the Bright Star Restaurant, and Jessica Chrisman. You can find a link to her short film in the show notes. And if you made it this far, I'm assuming that you like the show. So please leave us a review. It helps get the show out to more people, which means I can book really good guests. And most important of all, I can keep making the show. This episode was co-produced with Laura Scott, music by Prom Queen. Make sure you're following along on Instagram. Hello, Rachel Bell. And if you have something to tell me, you have a burning question, you have a guest to suggest, or you're a company that is looking to advertise on Your Last Meal, go to yourlastmealpodcast.com and send us a message. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. The interviews are typically fun. I've had... Not this one. This one is not, not going to be fun, so get ready. You're not going <laughs> to like this one at all. Awesome! <laughs> yeah. We're going to start Great. with easy questions like, what's your relationship like with your mother? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Can you say something for me? I sure can. I talk for a living. I could talk and talk until you don't want me to talk anymore. <laughs> okay, great. I just had to switch the um, sound over to the headphone. Oh, so cool. that.